The first reading is from John, uh, chapter 4, verses 7 to 26. A Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. His disciples had gone to the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? Jews do not share things in common with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that it is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you the living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have no bucket, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our ancestor Jacob, who gave us the well, and with his sons and his flocks drank from it? Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but those who drink of the water that I give them will never be thirsty. The water that I will, I will give will become in them a spring of water gushing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I may never be thirsty or have to keep coming here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come back. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you say that the place where people must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father seeks such as these to worship him. God is spirit, and for those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will proclaim all things to us. Jesus said to her, I am he, the one who is speaking to you. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Reverend Smith was shaking people's hands at the door. One by one, the members of the congregation filed past. Thank you so much. Lovely sermon today. Very uplifting. Oh, you were so helpful today. Reverend Smith resisted the urge to reply, in what way? How was that helpful? What area of your life did it challenge? How did God speak to you? This wasn't really the time or the place. Not with another hundred or so hands to shake, another hundred or so smiles, another hundred or so brief pastoral encounters. Pastor, thank you so much for the worship, said one generic elderly lady with grey hair. You were really in touch with the Lord this morning. And as she said this, Reverend Smith thought to himself, if only you knew. His mind was already on how he was going to try and sort out the arguments that he had had with his whole family just before leaving home to come to church to get ready for the service. He looked past the generic elderly lady with grey hair to his wife and children, all smiling happily, keeping up the image of Happy Mance family. 
And so the members of the congregation smiled their way out of worship with the rousing tune of the final hymn still ringing in their ears. They got into their cars, jumped on their buses and boarded their tubes and trains and set off back to their lives, back to the trials and stresses and strains and problems which they had been able to happily forget about for the last couple of hours. Reverend Smith sat down after another half hour or so on the door and looked around at the small group still hovering in the corners. He thought back over the service. Yes, it had gone well. The worship had been uplifting. The music, very professional. The sermon was one of his better ones, very challenging whilst assuring people of God's unconditional love for them. And suddenly it dawned on him that through... The whole time, not one person in the entire church had demonstrated the slightest degree of honesty. He'd been operating out of a facade himself, forcing the pastoral smile whilst wanting to curl up and die inside out of guilt at the things he'd said only a few hours earlier. The congregation had, to a person, not been honest with him or each other. If the answers to his often repeated, how are you today, were to be believed, 100 people were fine, not grumbling, and doing okay, thank you very much for asking. Actually, no, 99 were doing okay. John had indicated that he had a problem, but there'd been so many people queuing behind him at just that moment that there'd been no time to talk or pray with him or even find out what the nature of his problem was. Well, they'd all rousingly sung the songs. The volume of the singing had been quite up to its usual standard, if not slightly louder. The amens to the prayers had been resounding, and the hallelujahs during the sermon very inspiring. Oh, never. Yes, we're there. Thank you. <laughs> well thought, Reverend Smith. Is it likely that all those people were really able to worship happily today? Is it likely that they were all able to sing those happy songs with integrity, the songs which told God how much they loved him? Is it likely that they managed to mean every word? Somehow, Reverend Smith thought it unlikely. After all, if he was in pieces inside and he was a reverend, why should he expect any more from the congregation? What if the truth were somewhat more depressing? What if a hundred people had come together to meet with one another and with God and had spent the whole time deceiving each other, God and themselves? Surely this couldn't be the case, could it? But what if it was? What if the way church was structured, the way, the way they always did things, forced people into behaving a certain way, smiling a certain twinkly-eyed smile, singing certain songs and praying certain prayers, when actually many of them could not in all integrity mean a word of it. What would it take for the worship of his church to allow people the space to be honest about where they were before God? What view of God would be necessary for people to be able to own their own hurt, their anger and their frustrations before God? What about those people who were just so angry with God for the way their lives had gone? Was it really realistic to expect them to sit there and pray happy prayers and sing happy songs? And so... Reverend Smith wondered, because he was, after all, a reverend, what does the Bible say to people who have had it up to here 
with happy songs, who feel that they never want to sing another happy song again. And Reverend Smith's thoughts turns to Psalm 137. That well-known psalm with the little-known ending, and it was especially to the lesser-known last verse that Reverend Smith's mind went. So this is Psalm 137, verses 1 to 9. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and there we wept, when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung up our harps, for there our captors asked us for songs, and our tormentors asked for mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How could we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand wither. Let my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem's fall, how they said, tear it down, tear it down, down to its foundations. O daughter Babylon, you devastator, happy shall they be who pay you back what you have done to us. Happy shall they be who take your little ones and dash them against the rock. Happy shall they be who take the little ones of the Babylonians and dash their heads against the rocks. The people of Israel in ancient times were a people of song. They had rhythm in the blood and their whirling, dancing, their praises to the one true God, everything about the way they were shouted praises to their God and they were famous for their praise songs known throughout the known world. We know many of them from the book of Psalms. Other nations looked at Israel's worship tradition with awe. But the people of Israel were now in exile. They were in slavery. The Babylonians had conquered them and deported them to a foreign land. And so they sat beside the rivers in Babylon, looking wistfully at the horizon, remembering their beautiful land and their beautiful temple, knowing that it was all in ruins, their places of worship destroyed, their homes burned. They knew they were never going back, <clears throat> not in their generation, certainly. So what were they to sing now? How did their happy, renowned worship songs help them now? And all the while, the Babylonians tormented them. Come on, sing us a song. What about your famous worship? What about your joyful dancing? Come on, give us a number. And the Israelites looked at one another in despair. And there by the river in Babylon, they wept. They wept with grief as they remembered their homes, their temple, their places of worship. They wept that all that had been so good had been taken from them. They wept that God seemed to have abandoned them. How could they cope? What were they to do? And this isn't just an ancient story. 
The political context is different, but the effect is still the same. If you want to find those same people, just cross the channel and go to Calais. They cried out before God of their disappointment, of their sense of bereavement, of their loss. They asked how God could have allowed this to happen. And the Babylonians wanted them to sing a happy song of the Lord. Not likely. So they hung their harps on the trees and they said to one another, how can we sing the songs of the Lord whilst in a foreign land? And they refused to sing their happy songs because those songs were not the right songs to sing. Not now, not here, not in exile in Babylon. Singing happy songs now would be lying. It would be mocking God. It would be refusing to face up to what had happened to them. But they still sang. They sang of their sadness. They sang of their anger. They sang of their disappointment. You only have to read through the Psalms that were written in exile, of which Psalm 137 is one, but it's not the only one, to get something of this honesty that they exhibited as they brought their raw emotions before God in worship. They were honest with God about their feelings, not for them some oh-so-British effort to push their anger deep down inside, where it would fester for years before coming out to haunt them. Not for them some necessity to pretend everything was fine when actually everything was awful. They knew that God could take whatever they needed to throw at God. They trusted that God could absorb their anger and that he could cope with their bitterness and meet them in their hurts. And so they were honest before God and with one another. And they sang before God, happy is the one who grabs the babies of the Babylonians and smashes their heads on the rocks. Well, you don't get much more honest than that, do you? These people knew God well enough to know that he wasn't about to disown them simply because they were honest with him about their deepest, darkest, most violent feelings. The relationship between the ancient Israelites and their God was such that it could withstand the brutal honesty of emotions like this. And I do wonder if we could usefully ask ourselves the question of whether if we hated somebody enough to want their children dead, we would be prepared to admit it, even to ourselves, let alone to others or to God. We live in a world where children are killed in war on a regular basis. Airstrikes against ISIS strongholds in Syria are reportedly disturbingly indiscriminate in their targeting. And none of us are immune from complicity in systems where children are exploited for our benefit. Around six million children worldwide are used as forced labour within the clothing and fashion supply chains, many of them in life-threatening conditions in factories. We may not be actively wishing them dead, but by proxy we may not be too far away. 
and our buying choices all too often condemn the innocent and our lack of action incurs guilt by association. It is a dark and complex world that we live in. And yet still we're here, we come along on a Sunday to meet with our sisters and brothers in Christ, to meet with the living God. And I just sometimes wonder, in the grand scheme of things, whether we end up behaving like the generic, non-specific congregation in Reverend Smith's church. All smiles and happiness, fooling ourselves, others and God. What would it take for church to model the example of the Israelites, where we could praise and sing happy songs when we have things to be praiseful and happy about, but where there is also space to be honest and open about our darker emotions, where we can own our guilt and our complicity? What would it be like to have a church where the voices from the dark underside of humanity could be heard from time to time? What would it be like to have a church where honesty and integrity were more important than anything else? What would it be like if we learned to be honest in worship, honest with ourselves, honest with one another, and honest with God? Well, I wonder if the first battle to be won here is learning to be honest with ourselves. A phrase from my days as a student at Ministerial Training College still sometimes returns to haunt me. I used it in the opening prayer, Deliver Us From Deception. I don't know if you noticed. I can still hear Brian Hames' voice, because it was he who was my college principal, exhorting those of us training for ministry, never underestimate your capacity to deceive yourselves. It is all too easy to kid ourselves that we are doing fine, to convince ourselves that we're coping, that our relationships are going well, and that other people can't hurt us. Never underestimate your capacity to deceive yourself. The reality for many of us is that when things get tough, we don't like facing up to the truth of what has happened to us or is happening to us. It's often so much more comfortable to pretend that nothing is going wrong, not even admitting to ourselves the darker feelings we have and the actions they drive us to. Possibly because they make us feel guilty. I mean, if I wanted to smash someone else's child's head against a rock, I think I'd probably be dealing with some fairly high levels of guilt about that emotion. Much more comfortable to ignore it and deceive myself into believing that I'm doing fine, rather than admitting it to myself and facing the guilt and beginning the path towards healing. Of course, being honest with ourselves is only the first step. We may know deep down inside that things are far from right, in the dark watches of the night. But that doesn't do anything about the public face that we've spent a lifetime constructing. You know, the happy smile, the twinkly eyes, or whatever it is we use, the gruff exterior, whatever it may be, that belies the pain underneath. 
those who have lived a lifetime of coming to terms with their sexuality may well be able to resonate with this. The problem with being honest with one another, as well as with ourselves, is that we don't know how the other person will respond. And also, just at a very practical level, we can't be honest with one another all the time. I mean, we just never cope. At a very basic level, if everybody here started emoting all over me immediately after the service, I mean, how, how would that help? We don't really want to hear everybody else's problems. We're all too damaged ourselves to be able to cope with everyone else's honesty. But one thing that is worth thinking about here is that one of the main criticisms of Christians by people who are outside of the church is that we are a bunch of hypocritical, self-righteous what's-its. And if we always go around giving the impression that we are eternally sorted, always having the happy smile with all of our problems firmly in the past, well, who can blame people for finding that off-putting? A bit of honesty from time to time would go a long way towards rectifying this. If we could be honest about the fact that all we are is just a bunch of sinners who happen to be forgiven, maybe others wouldn't find God quite so intimidating. After all, Jesus did not hang around with religious, sorted people. He actually said that they didn't need him. Jesus hung around with prostitutes and foul-mouthed fishermen he went to the well and took a drink with a woman whose marital status was somewhat complex, almost certainly a victim of abuse. He spent time with people whose sinfulness was so obvious, whose woundedness was so visible, that it offended the church-going types of his day. His meeting with the Samaritan woman by the well broke taboos about ethnicity and gender and social class. But I sometimes fear that we are so dishonest with one another in our attempts to appear holy or happy or just ourselves that we end up alienating those whom Jesus died for. And my worry is that if this is so, we might find Jesus not wanting to spend much time with us, leaving us to our singing whilst he's off spending time around the corner in Soho, perhaps, with those who really need him. The truth, of course, is that we all need Jesus just as much as anybody else. We still sin, I still sin, we still hate people, I still hate people, we still have broken relationships, I still have broken relationships. If only we could find ways of being honest with one another about it. What might that begin to look like? Well, I'm going to suggest that probably all being massively honest with each other over coffee after the morning service may not be the place to start. But for some of us, that place of honesty will be found through involvement in a small group of Christians who meet regularly. A place where we can build the kind of close relationships where honesty becomes possible and where we can find support from our sisters and brothers that will help us through the tough times. Liz and I uh, attend Exchange, the young adults group that meets here at Bloomsbury, and we find there there are moments of great honesty as that group 
pray and support one another. And I know that there are other home groups that meet at Bloomsbury where that also is possible. Some of us may find a group too much, and we will find the place of honesty as we meet another Christian for prayer, being honest together about what we hear God saying to us. And if you're challenged or encouraged by this, either find somebody who you already know and trust and say, could we pray together from time to time, please? Just spend some time sitting before God, talking and praying. Or come and talk to me or one of the other ministers here, and we'd be glad to facilitate that. My own journey has found great honesty in the wise counsel of a spiritual director. I saw a, a woman in, in Bristol for many years as my spiritual director, and I now see a, a man in, in South London. Uh, both, interestingly, quite high Anglican background. And then companions on my spiritual journey who have helped me to learn to be honest with God as I am honest with another person within the confines of a safe and confidential space. And so to grow in my relationship with God, which could so easily otherwise stagnate. At a very simple level, we can find honesty in the opportunities for prayer that are on offer at church week by week. If only we can learn not to leave, pausing only to pick up at the door our coat and the burden we put down when we walked in. If life is awful, be honest with someone, seek help, come and ask for prayer. Maybe in these and other ways we can learn how to be honest with one another. And a word of caution here, if someone trusts you enough to be honest with you, please treat them sensitively, because always there but for the grace of God go you and I. So honest with ourselves, honest with one another. But finally, let us always seek to be honest with God. And in many ways, this is the hardest thing. Being honest with ourselves is tough, being honest with others is difficult, but admitting our darkest feelings before God is a terrifying prospect. How is God going to react if I tell him I want to kill my enemy's baby? Well, the Israelites told him and he didn't disown them. What model of God we operate with here? Is God a God of love, a God of judgment, a God of anger, a God of forgiveness? Where, where do you see God sitting in relation to your own sinfulness? Where do I see God sitting in relation to my sinfulness? These are profound questions about the nature of God and they will affect our capacity to be honest with God about who we find ourselves to be. Do you pray? I'm not taking it for granted, it's really hard. But how and whether and when we pray may tell us a lot about our relationship with God. Sometimes we can find ourselves always saying the same stuff to God, or even finding ourselves not bothering to pray anymore, or just perhaps praying in old familiar ways. It might be instructive to start paying attention to what it is we're not saying to God. We may find that we are not being honest with God about some area of our lives. And maybe the time is upon us to own up to who we are before him and to receive forgiveness and healing. One of the prayer practices we've used over the last few years in our evening services has been to intentionally create space for honesty with God. 
We framed this around two questions. The first being an invitation to pause and reflect on where, over the last week, we have been particularly conscious of the presence of God. This is often an opportunity to give thanks to God, to bring to mind those moments of grace where God has reached out into our lives to comfort or strengthen us. But the second question, and much the harder question, has been an invitation to reflect on where, over this last week, it has felt as if God is absent from our lives. The experience of the absence of God is not something to be ashamed of, nor is it something to be denied. Even the greatest spiritual writers talk of their journey through the valley of the shadow of death, to quote Psalm 23, which we sung so beautifully earlier. The sense of being God-forsaken. Even Jesus on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it is these dark moments when God seems impossibly absent that invite us to our greatest honesty before God. Whether it is our sin or our circumstance or the actions of others, the absence of God can point us to those places in our lives where God is asking us to have the greatest courage of deep honesty. It is in the dark and lonely spaces of our souls that we confront the inner demons of self-loathing and hatred, where we discover the truth about our identity, our sexuality, our sinfulness. And it is here that honesty is hardest to achieve. Again, I have found that talking to others can help here as we seek to understand how we are relating to God. So here we are, Sunday morning, Bloomsbury Central Baptist Church. How are we doing? What are the opportunities for honesty and dishonesty that Sundays present us with? I don't think we're up to Reverend Smith's congregation's standards of deception. But I wonder if sometimes we have tendencies in that direction, as do all congregations. Christians of all different worship traditions can have a tendency to expect of one another a certain victorious, joyous Christian living, which is fine until our lives fall apart. So sometimes we just do need to get real and ask ourselves why we think we're here on a Sunday. Is it to get that emotional or intellectual lift out of the service that will see us through until at least Monday lunchtime? Or is it to meet in honesty with ourselves and with others and with God, who loves us and longs to forgive us, to heal us, to renew us, to refresh us and to comfort us? And as Jesus said to the woman at the well, to teach us to worship him, in spirit and in all truth.